0: I'm in my 20th year as a pastor now, uh, having preached the gospel and taught theology and helped people understand the Bible, uh, and that's that's really my main contribution as one of the leaders of the church. I'm very much a teacher. Uh, I'm better at explaining ideas and uh, you know and uh, informing uh, and helping people go, oh, I get it now. Uh, that's that's really what I do. I'm not very good at motivating people's hearts. I'm not uh, I'm not like Naturally persuasive in that way. I'm not a pep talker. Um, I, so I'm, I'm very much more a preacher than a teacher. And I think everybody has kind of picked that up if you've been here uh, for enough time. And like many pastors, I started off preaching over a youth group, over teenagers. So really, that was my target audience. That's all I was with. And then as years have gone on, you know, it kind of ages up. People get older. And so then I kind of move on to I get older. I'm like I'm not relevant to teenagers anymore. If I tried to talk like they talk on TikTok, it just wouldn't work with with the high schoolers, right? So now, like, I'm I'm preaching to a a much older audience. Um, And I look around, and at some point not long ago, I just realized that our congregation is, like, around 50% or more comprised of married couples. Uh, It's not teenagers anymore and stuff, and, you know... Patrick and I together have uh, officiated uh, 20 weddings. Then there are a bunch of couples that have come here and, uh, and have already been married when they showed up, stuff like that. So I realized that, uh, that our demographic has shifted from what I you know, started off with. And then I realized that I haven't ever really compiled a very direct explanation of the role of a godly husband or the role of a godly wife. I've preached on marriage um, when it comes up in the Bible. I've preached on it uh, several sermons in 1 Corinthians 7, um, a, ser- a couple sermons in uh, the Ten Commandments series, especially in the Seventh Commandment. And then, uh, and then there's a series, The Song of Solomon. That's a five-week series that was kind of about love and courtship and, uh, and marriage there, too. But I haven't given like a clear one-stop sermon on like, I want to know what it's like to be a husband, the way that God wants me to be a husband. I want to know what it's like to be a wife that God calls me to be. You know, like just the one-stop sermon that kind of brings all that together and organizes it and puts it in front uh, for for someone to kind of process through. Not only that, but six months ago, given that we're surrounded by many people who, uh, who are marriage age, um, not, you know now you also have the issue of divorce and remarriage. That comes up in people's minds because that's happening among people we know and in our in family members that we know and stuff like that. So I was asked this question about a little over six months ago. The question was when is it okay to divorce and when is it okay to remarry? And I I do know the general rules on that. Like divorce, it's like if you're cheated on, okay, you can divorce. It seems like that's legitimate, you know, in in Jesus' words. And then it seems like if your spouse is an unbeliever and wants to leave, doesn't want to be part of your Christian faith, like that seems like that's legitimized by the Apostle Paul. Um, But I've never exhaustively explored that issue to really look to see if there are other legitimate grounds that just aren't mentioned in those two main arenas. And I've certainly never investigated then the subject of remarriage. I just knew it was okay if your previous spouse died, then you can remarry, and it's not a big deal. But imagine now at this point in my career, 20 years in, and it's me, a teacher, very much a teacher, taught theology, helped people understand the Bible, and I get asked the question, you know, uh, when's it okay to divorce or when's it okay to remarry? And my answer is, I'm not really sure, and I don't know. I, I, I haven't figured that out yet. I honestly can't think of a more embarrassing or frustrating moment for me in the recent years. Uh, I was extremely bothered by my answer, and so, you know, and I'm gonna—I refuse to make something up and just try to like throw something at someone and make them think that that's the biblical answer. That's that would violate all of the, you know, the training in my mind of like, don't do that. I have to know it, I have to teach, it. I have to study, it. I have to draw it out from the word, not just make something up and hope the Bible agrees. So I, I just thought about it, and I think if I don't search the scriptures to give you a thorough answer on these issues, then I leave you without a lamp unto your feet and without a light unto your path. So I'm gonna combine these two little mini-serieses uh, that will go t- simultaneously um, to cover all the bases that I felt needed to be covered. For the, these two Sundays, this, the today and then next Sunday, uh, we'll talk about uh, the two different sermons, one about husbands today, and then next week about wives. And then the, uh, on the next two Mondays, so tomorrow and the Monday after that, uh, we'll do two Bible studies, one about divorce and one about remarriage. And that should cover it all. If there's too much material, I'll probably tag on another Monday. We'll see. But the default plan is two Sundays and two Mondays. Right so today and tomorrow, and then next week and the the day after uh, the, the Monday after that Sunday for today then, we are going to talk about how to be a godly husband. Uh, this is not something I'm an expert at and uh, and so I very much expect that as I'm preaching uh, I am also under the authority of the Word, and I need to also think about this, pray through this and uh, and do my best to, to follow what God says in his word. Now, if I'm going to be talking about a, how to be a godly husband, for all the women in the room, this ought to help you know what to look for in a husband. Uh, even if you are married, still what to look for in your husband. And if you're not married, then you know how to shop around, you know? Uh, for all the men, this will help you understand what God expects you to be as men whether uh, whether married or not um, there's a standard you know there's this responsibility that God places upon uh, husbands which means if you're not a husband yet and if you ever hope to be you must aspire to be this and uh, the renovation of the character must take place now you don't instantly become godly after your wedding quite the opposite you know the the day after uh, the moment after your wedding is done You start to discover, you and your wife both start to discover that uh, that you're deeper in sinfulness than you ever gave yourself credit for. Something we should know is that, biblically speaking, men and women are equal in value to God, but clearly different in function. The roles of men and women are differentiated in Scripture, and we don't shy away from that, and we don't try to erase that by the power of culture and society. It's not a popular idea in our our day, but you can't really get around it because it's plainly stated in the Bible. Society has largely forgotten, or rather uh, intentionally denied and defied, the roles of husbands and wives in marriage. They look at biblical roles of husbands and wives as bad things, uh, even though it's God's design. And we ought to know, as God's people, that when God designs something, it holds beauty and mystery and glory. Understanding God's call for husbands and God's call for wives is a way to honor and and obey God and to protect your marriage, and there's a a wisdom in it that will seem like foolishness to the world, to the unbelieving world, but it's the wisdom of God. So if if your philosophy behind marriage uh, happens to align, you know, congruently with with uh, worldly philosophy, pop social sciences and things, uh, you're probably not following the wisdom that God has given in his word. There's something to really be examined there. Consider this. Uh, the current statistic projects that 50% of marriages started this year will end in divorce. That's current, like 2022, 2022. Uh, 50% of all marriages started this year are projected to end in divorce. If it's a second marriage, if people who get married this year and it's their second marriage, it's uh, projected that 60% of those will end in divorce. If it's a third marriage, it's projected that 73 of those will end in divorce. So we can lean away from that notion that after your first marriage, you know what you want. I don't think that, that works at all, statistically. The common accusation is that Christian marriages share the same divorce rate as non-Christian marriages. Christians marry and divorce just as frequently as non-Christians. Um, I'm not a fan of that statistic only because that statistic includes everyone who, uh, who categorizes themselves as Christians, including Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc. But uh, what that statistic doesn't evaluate is whether or not these couples were actually following biblical prescriptions for the roles of husbands and wives. If you follow the roles for husband and wife, does that have no effect on the divorce rate? Right? That that, that I think is the better question, not, not the label of Christian or not, just if you follow biblical principle, does that in any way protect your marriage? So digging around, uh, you know, you find some other statistics where uh, couples that save themselves for marriage, they enter marriage as virgins, uh, the divorce rate drops by 25%, which that's dramatic statistically. For couples that uh, adhere to traditional biblical roles as husbands and wives, where they affirm them and, and say that they're trying to live by them, the statistics de- uh, vary depending on who we ask, but they all demonstrate a significant drop in the divorce rate and a significant rise in, in the rate of satisfaction. In the marriage. Now, how can that be when, when uh, the popular idea about biblical roles of husbands and wives is so unpopular? The Bible doesn't have examples of good husbands. Did you ever notice that? Like, can you, can you think of any husbands that are mentioned as good husbands? Because, you know, you have like a moment in 1 Peter 3 where uh, this woman, Sarah, is mentioned as a good wife to her husband Abraham. But Abraham, who's like the father of the faith, is never mentioned as a good husband. He's actually oftentimes a lousy husband. He lies about his wife. He gives her to another man to save his own life. Uh, He had a kid with the maid. There are a lot of moments where you just go like, I don't want to marry someone like that. We don't have great examples of husbands in the Bible. And pop culture doesn't help either. Every, you know, every, every sitcom you watch or whatever, there's always some dad that's a buffoon. There isn't a single passage uh, in the Bible where it says, like, this is what the perfect husband looks like. Because, you know, you've got this moment in, like, Proverbs 31. It, she's called the Proverbs 31 woman because she's like the perfect woman, the perfect wife, the perfect ideal adult woman. You know, she's responsible and smart, savvy. She knows what she's doing, and she's, she's caring for her family. She's taking care of her husband, all that stuff. Like, that's the perfect woman. And we don't have a passage like that for men. So I tried to see everything the Bible directly instructs about being a husband. I categorized it into six movements uh, and then a conclusion. And I guess I'll just kind of reveal them as we go if you're taking notes. But, you know, it's a new year, and so I thought I'd start a new habit. I'd put the heading up on the board as we go. So the first one is, a godly husband is a biblical lover. Godly husband is a biblical lover. That's, uh, that's our first idea. Um, and I, I want to at least, you know, give you the, or at least play with the, the definition here on lover because, um, you know, when you think lover in, in our society, you think like, you know, kissing, right? Lover. Um, That's not what we're going to talk about. Uh, We're talking about love resting, just biblical love, godly love, right? Uh, And we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5 on this. You should already be turned there. This is the most famous passage on husbands and wives, and it's the biggest, uh, most comprehensive treatment of the issue. Um, And so keep your place here if you'd like to, so you can keep referring back to it, because I'll mention Ephesians 5 a lot and point to certain verses on it. But uh, let me read it for you, starting in verse 22. It says, "Wives." Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Uh, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Uh, The passage starts for husbands... Um, most directly in verse 25. You have a, a moment in, in verse 23 where it says the husband's ahead head of the marriage, you know, head of, head of the wife. Um, but verse 25 is where it, it directly addresses husbands. You know, it's the vocative. Husbands, you guys, right? And so this is where it's, it simply opens up with husbands, love your wives. And modern entertainment tells us uh, that love is a feeling. You know this, right? Uh, it's a feeling. It's a, you're, you're in love. You know, I'm in love, I've fallen in love. Uh, biblical love never describes itself as that, right? It, it, it can include that, but it never like, defines itself as the feeling is the, is the thing. Uh, biblical love is not a feeling. Biblical love has feelings, but biblical love is not a feeling. Some of you have been madly in love before, right, where your, your heart races, you can't sleep, right? That's, that's the person you think about. That's all that you think about. You, you, you can't help but think about that person and no one else. And, you know, this person's perfect for you. That's all you can think. And ideally, that is how you feel about your spouse. That's what we hope for. But that's never used as a definition of love in the Bible. You can feel that way. You can, you can be madly in love in that sense. You can have all those feelings for someone who you're, who you're not married to, you can have those feelings for someone who is, uh, who is already married to someone else. You can have those feelings for someone uh, who's within your family, and so you, you, know, you can't marry because it's a close relative. You can have those feelings for someone uh, who's inappropriate in age, you know, far too old or far too young, whichever. There are uh, occasions where that, can, th- that feeling can be experienced uh, in an inappropriate context. So those feelings don't make a relationship legitimate, and the absence of those feelings don't make a, a, a relationship illegitimate. You have to remember that when the Bible was written, marriage just came about by arrangement, parental arrangement. I mean, just imagine your parents picked your spouse, right? I, you're just not going to fall, fall in love with this person in the same, way, you know, it's going to take a lot of working out because you meet them on your wedding day, you don't have this three-and-a-half-year history of dating. You know, you didn't meet in college or anything like that. It was just arranged. And so the absence of those feelings does not make a relationship illegitimate. And we're so enslaved to this idea of the feeling of love. Like, we just buy into it. You know, it's it's so natural. Uh, We think of the Romeo and Juliet kind of love, which is ridiculous. That's not a love story. That's a horror story. Right? I mean, Romeo and Juliet lied to everybody. Betrayed their families. Killed themselves because we can't be together. Juliet was 13. Romeo was 15 to 18. And you know what? You, do you know how he fell in love with Juliet? He was at a party looking for Rosaline, whom he was in love with. And then he just turned and he saw Juliet and he's like, never mind. That one. <laughs> this is not... By any biblical definition, real love. And even even by worldly standards, by secular standards, I think if if anyone actually reads the thing and learns the story, they go, yeah, maybe we don't want that. Yet how easily we believe it. You, You think you fall in love, so God's blessing it. And you think, oh, I've fallen out of love, so God is, you know, he wants me to break up. We base it on these feelings. God never told you to fall in love. God told you to walk in love. That's different. When you fall into something, I, mean, I know I'm being decorative about this, this expression here, but you know, when you fall, that's a, that's a way to admit that it, like, it's something that happens to you. Oh, I fell in love. You can't decide to do it. It happened to me. And I was overcome. I lost control. I can't help myself. You know, Head over heels. But when you walk in love, you choose how to go, and you're steady, and you're controlled. He says it to all Christians, Ephesians 5, chapter 1, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, I'm sorry. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. right, walk in love. Giving yourself up, being sacrificial, that's that. It's a command for all Christians. And if it's a command for all Christians, it's even more a command for husbands. Because, you know, you get singled out as husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. The way you treat your wife has to be above and beyond in terms of loving her over anyone else. Biblical love means love your wife as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to sanctify her that she might be holy, right? So love here is not an emotion, it's a decision which turns into an action, right? Love is a choice and a commitment, taking care of someone for that person's own good, not for some benefit you receive back, not for appreciation, not for affection, not for whatever. You can choose to do it or you can choose not to do it. And God says, Love your wife. You choose to obey that or disobey that. You make that choice every moment. Right? You have this big argument, you make that choice. Your anniversary's coming up, and you know it. You make that choice. You're struggling financially or some other external thing, but what are you going to do? You make that choice. Will you love your wife? And the way that uh, that when Jesus talks about love, the way that he talks about it, John fourteen fifteen, he says things like, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." And you get the same thing kind of said in, in John fourteen verse twenty one, or John fifteen verse ten, or Second John verse six. You you get all, all these moments where, like, "If you love me, you'll do you'll do what I say. You'll you'll do my commands." Right? That's that's the way that Jesus says it. So, uh, if anyone says, "I love God with all my heart," I just I'm just not close to Him right now. You're not loving God. You're just not. That's not the way that God understands and defines love for us. So if you say, I love my wife, but you don't sacrifice your own comfort and your own needs to take care of her, you don't love her. The Bible talks about real love, true biblical love, as being obedient to God's commands. So, whatever God commands you to be toward your wife, the way to love her is to obey those instructions. God has given you instructions, follow those instructions. If a husband loves his wife, even when he doesn't feel like it, hopefully it will breed feelings. But if he doesn't, Love his wife, it will certainly lose the appropriate feelings. These feelings aren't the purpose nor the prize, they're a benefit to enjoy. But you must first love your wife biblically. Biblical love's not an emotion, it's a decision. Okay, so it's the decision. What kind of a decision? What do we mean by it's a decision? It is the decision to give yourself up for your wife. That's what it says in verse 25, to give yourself up for your wife. Like Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her, right? That means, if you want to like simplify it, stupid man terms, right? I need to know it like this, her needs come first. That's what that means. Her needs come first. Like uh, the very, very easy illustration, Uh, when Christ loved the church, the church needs to live. So Jesus is like, okay, I'll give my life. So that my bride can live her needs come first verse uh, 28 and 33 say to love her as your own body you know that uh, I think that means love her in, like in a way instead of your own body, not love her just as much as and Uh, along with your own body, but it's like love her instead of, because, you know, Jesus gave himself up, so he loved her instead of himself when it comes to the church. We have to look at Jesus as that model, because that's what the the passage puts in front of us. Jesus is the model on this, right? Uh, Look to Jesus, who is frequently disappointed by and offended by and betrayed by and hurt by and even cheated on by the church by christians and yet jesus doesn't withdraw love he doesn't he doesn't pull it back he doesn't retreat so he can stay angry You know, he doesn't even retreat for a while so he can stay angry for a while because he doesn't want to fix it yet. You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't stay angry for a while before he comes back to then eventually work things out, kind of reluctantly waiting for the church to make the first move. Jesus' love for the church is the model by which husbands are to love their wives. Her needs come first. Her physical needs. Could be like her safety or her health, her relational needs can be intimacy, commun- uh, communication, right? Her uh, her spiritual needs she needs good teaching, sound doctrine, and and quality fellowship. Like every everyone has needs, different kinds of needs, and like I, I've got a twelve year old kid, I've got Elias, right? When you have a child, you kind of realize what basic human needs are. They need to be fed. They need to get rest. They need to be in a safe environment, you know, warm, clothed, all that stuff. But they also need affirmation and compliments, right? They also, at times, need to be warned or corrected on, like, things that are, that are going wrong. Like, when you have a child, you know that they're what the basic needs of a human being are. Every human being needs them, even when they're adults. So then, when you, when you put her needs above yours, think categorically like that. What what are the needs of like a, a child? Uh, adults have the same needs. Men and women they all have the same needs. Uh, we just we just got older. But your wife needs to be affirmed, right? She needs to hear compliments. See, she needs to know that her husband supports her and believes in her. I, I know that uh, some of this is like pretty basic stuff, but think hard on this, husbands. Right, Jesus. Jesus took the sins of 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 sinners upon himself, and then he suffered for them, and then went even to the point of dying for them, and he forgave us. Jesus took a guilty bride. You understand the church, we human beings, we were sinners when God demonstrated his love for us in this. We were enemies with God. Jesus took a guilty bride, paid for not most of her sin, but paid for all of it. Then forgave his bride and drew her to himself in love. When is that last time that husbands and wives, you were fighting and the husband said, okay, I'm going to suffer for this. I'm going I'm to take the whole hit on this and I'm going to draw my wife to myself. And love her. Like, yeah, that comes at my cost. I lose my pride. I lose my my self-respect in a way. I you know, I lose my my standing, I that that sense of victory. I now I feel like I'm I'm the one that lost, and now maybe she'll hold it over me for the rest of uh, for the, the rest of my life, whatever. But just I'll take it and I will draw her close and forgive her. And I will love my wife. Will you do that? Your wife sins. She sins against you. Will you suffer for it? Will you suffer for her and forgive her? If you're a Christian when you get married, that's what you sign up for. Will you put her needs before your own? will you put her preferences before your own? Will you give yourself up for your wife? Love is the thing we withdraw whenever we're disappointed by or offended by or hurt by someone, especially between husbands and wives. We withdraw love all the time. You know, I don't want to talk to you for a while. Let's just kind of do our own thing, you know. And it's like there's this this crazy thought that comes into the head of every husband when they're fighting with their wives it's like okay fine you know be mad you're mad at me fine okay fine I'll still go to work I'll do the chores I'll fix things I'll carry you know the heavy stuff whatever I'll watch the kids I'll do all that but I don't want to be loving and I don't want to care and I I don't want to make things right with you I don't want to put her first I just want to isolate. I want to do my job so I can, da- I can say I did my part, but I don't want to love. Like if you say, okay, husband, you're fighting with your wife. Well, you still have to do the chores. You'd be like, fine, whatever. And you'll do the chores. Fine. But when you say, husband, you're fighting. You need to go and love your wife. That's when we're like, why? No, I don't want to. It's not that easy. Why do I always have to be the one to do that? Why can't it be even like 70-30? Like, I'll do most of it. She does 30% of it. Husbands, all that other stuff is not the stuff that God mentions first and foremost. He doesn't talk about doing chores or watching the kids. God doesn't say, like, make sure you carry the heavy stuff. He says, husbands... Love your wife. And you'll say, you know, she doesn't even seem like my wife anymore. There's no passion, no chemistry, no magic. The love is gone. God says, love your wife. And you say, well, we we don't even talk. Like I, She does her thing, I do my thing. It's like we're not even married. We're like roommates. We're like just next-door neighbors. Love your neighbor. <laughs> then you go, well... <laughs> Okay, but we don't even interact. Like, it's not like we're neighbors and we're like friends. We're not even that. We're just like strangers. Love the stranger. Yeah, but she hurts me. She, she disrespects me. She belittles me. She tears me down. She's like my enemy. Love your enemy. If all of that is true toward people that we're not married to, right? To your neighbor, to a stranger, to, to an enemy. If you're supposed to love those people... Uh, It tells you this, there is never a time when a husband does not have to love his wife. There is never a single moment where you are released from that high calling. Biblical love is not a feeling. It is a constant, ongoing decision to give yourself up for her. To put her needs first. Be a biblical lover. The rest of the points will be much faster than that. But here's our second point. The godly husband is a spiritual leader. You might have heard that before. The godly husband is a spiritual leader. And not just a spiritual leader. He's the spiritual leader over his wife and over any children that they might have. He is the spiritual leader. Right? Ephesians five, uh, which we were looking at, clearly indicates that the husband is the spiritual leader of the marriage. He's the head of his wife, right? And there's even in verse thirty-one, I think it says that like they leave father and mother. He leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife. So now it's not mom and dad that are that are in charge of this couple. It's the husband in charge of the wife. So the financial independence. And there's a distinct separation now in authority. You now have charge over your wife. God holds you responsible to that. You can't hide behind your parents bossing you around or something like that. There needs to be a healthy separation. Not like, I'm never going to talk to my parents again, but there needs to be a healthy separation where you lead your wife. Your parents don't lead you on how to lead your wife. 1 Corinthians 11 kind of dips into this too. Look at verse 3. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. That's in a weird order. I, I wish he just went like, the head of the wife is the man, the head of the man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. I wish he just went like that, but it's okay. Here's what's weird about that, though, right? If you look at the commands given to husbands, none of the commands, okay, all of the commands identify him as the spiritual leader. He is the head. That's what that means, okay? Uh, he has to make certain calls. He is the head. But none of these commands have to do with leadership, right? It doesn't say like, oh, he, he makes all the important financial decisions. He calls the shots. He has all the power. It doesn't say she has to do everything that he says. It, it never says stuff like that. It just says he's the head of the wife and he has to love her like Christ loved the church. And that's just kind of weird. Like there's a, a strange absence. There's a hole of instructions on like what you're supposed to say to your wife, how you're supposed to lead her. If a single one of those verses said, you know, like, uh, he he calls all the decision-making power. He has all the decision-making power. If a a single verse said that, men would print it, frame it, put it on the wall over the wife's pillow. (laughs) We'd use that to force our wives to do our will, do our bidding, do whatever we say. The Bible calls the husband to be a spiritual leader, but it never actually grants him his own authority to force his wife to do anything. That's weird. Like, the the husband doesn't actually have authority of his own. He's a representative of a higher authority, right? The, The head of the woman is the man. It doesn't stop there. The head of the man is Christ. And it doesn't even stop there. The head of Christ is God. Like, that's something to think about as a husband. You don't just get to... Call the shots. You have to check in with your commander. You have a head over you. Yes, you're the head of your wife, but there's a head over you. The husband doesn't have authority of his own. He's a representative of a higher authority. In chapter 5, verse 26, Ephesians 5, verse 26, we're going back to Ephesians 5, it says that he might sanctify his wife. The husband should sanctify his wife, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the what? the word so that he might present the, uh, the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus is trying, uh, the way that he is modeling his husbandship is to take the church and sanctify the church with the word of God and then to present the church to himself in splendor without spot, without wrinkle, holy, without blemish. That now is the model by which husbands must spiritually lead their wives. A godly husband's spiritual leadership is not the use of personal authority to make his wife do his bidding. Rather, a godly husband's spiritual leadership aims to sanctify, meaning spiritually transform and spiritually grow, his wife to be more like Jesus, to be more righteous and holy. And that is done Through the washing of water with the word. Meaning, uh, forgiveness, that's the washing of water, that's you find in the word. That's the Bible. Right? So all sorts of mistakes are going to be made, and then you just just keep loving her and washing her with the word. And And then showing her, modeling for her biblical love. That means that the godly husband has no authority of his own. He relies on God's authority, the the word of God. He relies on God's authority. He points his wife to scripture, keeps her connected to the Bible. So he's got to know and obey scripture himself. He has to know the Bible too, right? You can't lead someone where you've never been. Husbands, your job is to make sure you and your wife are submitting to the Lord. That's your job. What does it mean to be a spiritual leader? Your job is to make sure you and your wife are submitting to the Lord. As the head. That's your job. She submits to you, you submit to Jesus. And Jesus has submitted to God. Your job is to make sure you're both being taught the word, understanding your forgiveness, and being transformed. Grown spiritually, sanctified, made holy. Your goal is that your wife will be holy and without blemish that means she will be righteous she'll be like christ she'll be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect so you have to be holy and without blemish too you need to be grown by the word transformed by the word model confession model repentance model uh, the humility to ask for accountability all of that you have to model that That's spiritual leadership. It is not dictatorship. It is not tyranny. It is not lording your authority over her. It is a holy responsibility to make sure you both love and follow Jesus. It's a sacred charge to ensure that you and your wife are growing more like Jesus by learning and obeying the word. Be a spiritual leader. Third. A godly husband is a romantic partner. Now, I know I just spent a whole bunch of time saying, like, biblical love, biblical love is not a feeling, right? It's not, it's not the, like, I've fallen in love feelings. It's true. But it does foster feelings. It does. And when the, when the love is biblical, those feelings are good. Um, I'm going to show you uh, chapter 5, verse 29 of Ephesians. No one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church, and that's a model for us on how husbands should love our wives, right? To nourish and cherish your wife. Nourish and cherish. Some of you, and it's it's like that's what you do for your own body, right? That's what you do for your own body, and you got to love your wife more than yourself. Some of you love your own bodies, by dieting and exercising and, you know, health, whatever. Fine. Make sure your wife is healthy. Now the rest of us love our own bodies by eating what we want and relaxing. Good. Make sure your wife is happily fed and well-rested. Nourish and cherish your wife. But, like, think about that, right? Nourish and cherish your wife. There's this idea in the Bible that even though marriages were like parentally arranged and stuff, there's this idea that you are still to enjoy your wife, even if she's a stranger on the day of your marriage, the day of your wedding. Uh, when that happens, still enjoy your wife. Nourish her so she's healthy. Cherish her so she's happy and so that you are happy being with her. Let me take you even back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. It says, When a man is newly married, He shall not go out with the army or be liable for any public duty, any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has has taken. I love the fact that God's idea of a honeymoon was one full year. Like, give it a shot. Go and be happy with your wife. Go and be happy with your wife. Especially in that first year of marriage, that's the honeymoon. Go and be happy with your wife. What does that mean? What does the be happy mean? What are we talking about on the honeymoon for one year? (laughs) Kissing. Right? Look at uh, Proverbs 5, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. We don't, we don't often use verses like that. We don't you, know? you don't. you don't teach those verses a whole lot. You don't talk about them a lot. You don't have them in a lot of sermons. It makes the preacher nervous, right? Being attracted to your wife is right and good and glorious, Make sure love is biblical, meaning give yourself up for her. Her needs come first. And make sure leadership is spiritual, meaning it's not personal authority, but it's, make, it's leading the both of you to be transformed by the word and growing together spiritually. If you too can commit to that, uh, if you're not fighting selfishly, you're not leading, each other, leading her into sin, enjoy your wife. Enjoy your wife. Now, that's a benefit you get to enjoy your wife. But here's like a weird thing. It's not just a benefit. It's also a discipline. It's a command. Like there are times you won't want to enjoy your wife and then God still goes, you still need to do it. You still need to enjoy your wife. Even when you don't want to be romantic and you don't want to be intimate, still be that for her. First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. The husband should give to his, uh, to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Yes. Like, think about that in our society. Say, the wife doesn't have authority over o- her own body. The husband does. That's what God says. What does the world say? Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. The world would agree with that. Verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now that means when it comes to intimacy, romantic, emotional, sexual intimacy, do not deprive your spouse. His body belongs to her. Her body belongs to him. This applies to both spouses, husbands, and wives. So this can feature in today's sermon and next week's sermon. It doesn't matter, right? Make sure you meet your spouse's needs here because you realize only you can. You are the only one with this kind of relationship with your spouse. Only you can. Your spouse is married only to you. It is an exclusive benefit an exclusive right and also an exclusive obligation you can both agree together to refrain you can agree t- together to refrain if you need time to like pray about something you know like maybe you're in a disagreement and you need to reconcile first you, you say okay well let's not just manufacture intimacy for now let's pray and then let's let's be together and you can do that but stay faithful in this Or else verse 5 says that Satan has this huge opportunity to enter into the sanctity of your marriage and wreck it. Temptation is so much more enhanced when there's dissatisfaction in this area of the relationship. Because you can't have this kind of a relationship with anyone else. So now you're stuck. And you're wishing I should have married someone else. Be very, very careful here. The damage is immense if someone pledges their whole self to you and you go, yeah, 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 but I'm not really interested. Uh, Hopefully no one is too needy and too demanding and can respect when someone else is not feeling well, tired, headache, whatever, but that's just part of being understanding and and considerate, courteous to one another as, as human beings. But think of the temptations that come in when, uh, when the marriage does not have this in place, this kind of intimacy. The temptation for bitterness, jealousy, lust, depression, anxiety, infidelity, dishonesty, Covetousness, or any other kind of sinful coping habit. Nourish and cherish your spouse. Nourish and cherish your wife. It's not just a benefit, it's a right, and it's a command, and it's a discipline. You have to commit to it, or you will shipwreck your marriage. Be a romantic partner. Fourth, a godly husband is a protector. Godly husband is a protector. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7 of 1 Peter. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. That means... Live with your wives in an understanding way. Understanding of what? Understanding of your wife, right? Like you know your wife better than anyone else does. You, you, know, uh, you know if she's afraid of silly things, right? Like the dark or enclosed spaces or being alone or heights, right? You know if she's like afraid of stuff. You know if, if, uh, if I don't know, let's say she's very emotional. You know she's very emotional, uh, you know she's insecure. You know all these things. You know her, her, uh, her areas where she might be weak. She knows all of yours too. Now, God has reminded husbands, you know these things about her. Now live with her in an understanding way. What does that mean to, to live with her in an understanding way? Well, if you know which areas in which your wife is not strong, be understanding. You can't be understanding and mean at the same time. Be understanding, like, I know what it's like to struggle with that. Or even if you don't know, you just go, I know you're struggling with that. And uh, like, I know what it's like to struggle, right? What man goes, well, when I have a sin that I'm struggling with, I just stop forever, <laughs> right? They, you know what it's like to struggle. So yeah, if you're like, we've talked about this. You know, why are you still doing this? Well, why are you still? Be understanding. Colossians 3.19, I like the way it says it. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them or do not be embittered against them. Do not be sharp-edged against them. Don't be harsh with them. Look, if someone's lazy or greedy or addicted to something, you cannot change them by yelling at them and mocking them and telling them how stupid it is that they're living like that. Do they go, oh, you're right, thank you. Thank you. That's never gonna happen. You'll never change someone like that. And I don't know why that's always our default approach. You have to be understanding. That doesn't mean you have to be enabling, like keep doing drugs. You don't, you know, you're not enabling. You you gotta know where they struggle, and it takes patience and love to help them. This is a process, not a, a single conversation moment, and your words are the magic cure that they never knew. It's arrogant no one will be transformed by your attacks your verbal attacks they'll only be transformed by your biblical love and your spiritual leadership you have to rely on the word of god so you have to be understanding protect your wife even from yourself protect your wife even from yourself from the temptation to discourage her and to beat her down for whatever she might area she might be weak in right uh you realize it says it says um Love your, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to, her, uh, to the woman as the weaker vessel. Weaker vessel. Now, don't get nervous about this term here, weaker vessel. What does that mean? It means weaker vessel, right? It's not a sexist thing. Her vessel, her body, is weaker. I mean, that's, uh, there might be exceptions, right? You could have a bodybuilder wife. Fine, Right? But on the general whole, I don't think we're held accountable to that. And when you just read this text, it's a general, uh, it's a general exhortation. Uh, honor her as the weaker vessel, right? They don't handle, like men and women, they are different physiologically. The vessel is different. So we're not even talking about the emotional thing right now, but even though I think that would apply too. But just even if you take the body, uh, women don't handle cold as well as, as men do. Because cold weather, their bodies will then uh, internalize all the warmth to protect the womb and the, the, the organs in the, in the body, inside. Men, not so much. Same with hunger. Women will feel the negative effects of hunger and take damage from it earlier than men will. Men and women, uh, if, even if they're the same weight, let's say that they're both 150 pounds, uh, of the same weight, the man statistically has 15% more muscle mass than the woman of the same weight, because we're just built differently. That's why to enlist in the Marines, men have to be able to do three pull-ups. Women don't have to do any. And you go, well, equality, what the heck? We're built differently. Right? That's why like, professional football is not co-ed. That would be a disaster right? The, uh, women are more resistant to, uh, to sickness, the severity of sickness anyway. They can get sick just as easily as a man can, but they tend not to get as severely sick. You know, like there are men in this room who have said many times, like, when I get sick, I get wrecked. Yeah, that, that tends to be uh, true more often for the male uh, body rather than the female body. Men and women are different, and this isn't socialization. It's not like because, you know, when you were growing up, the, your parents made you made the guys play with, like, trucks, and women played with dolls. It's not socialization. This is, this is just physiology. There's no shame in it, right? There shouldn't be shame. The command is not shame her as the weaker vessel. It's honor her as the weaker vessel. Treat her better than you. That's what honoring is. You protect her. You carry the heavy stuff. It's cold. You give her your jacket. Someone breaks into your house. You fight off the intruder. And you kill the spider. (laughs) Protect her. Protect her from every kind of harm. Protect her even from your own harshness. Don't bully her. Don't, don't ever bully her. Don't ever ignore her. Don't ever insult her. Don't ever disregard her. Don't ever mock her. Don't ever shame her. Don't ever yell at her. Don't ever threaten her. Don't ever neglect her. Don't ever injure her. Jesus would never do that to the church. She is an heir with you in the grace of life. Meaning she is a full partner an equal when it comes to life in Jesus. You have different roles to play, but God doesn't favor one over the other. She's equal in worth, but you, your job is to treat her as more. You do not treat her as an equal. You honor her. You protect her at the risk of yourself. She is more. In your mind, she is more. You treat her as more valuable, more precious. You take better care of her. You honor her, not yourself. Your ministry to, of your marriage, the, the taking care of your wife, your, that, that holy responsibility that you have in marriage is so important that God will not let you get away with failing in this ministry. He says uh, how you treat your wife directly affects how God treats you, how he hears your prayers, how he responds to your prayers. That's why right here in 1 Peter it says, Honor her as the weaker vessel so that your prayers aren't hindered. Because that is a direct reflection of your understanding of Christ in the church. Your sacrifice has to come on yourself to honor her, to protect her, to protect her from any harm, including protecting her from you. So you keep a close guard on your heart and on your thoughts and on your words and on your actions. Don't be harsh with your words. Don't expose her to danger. Don't inflict on her harm. Be a protector. Fifth, a godly husband is a provider. godly husband is a provider. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Uh, and the same kind of a, an idea comes up in Exodus 21, which we'll talk about in one of our Monday Bible studies. But uh, when this was written, when this verse was written, men worked to provide, right? That's, in that culture, men were the workers to provide. Women, they were at home, and they took what was provided by the husband, and then they managed the home. Cook, clean, child care, right? Um, so, and that doesn't mean women didn't work outside the house also. It's, we'll talk about that next week. But this, this command is directed at men, okay? This, this verse here is directed specifically at men, single and married men, so that it matters even more for a married man who has a wife that he's responsible for. But it, it really just applies to all men. If a man doesn't work to provide for his family, he has denied the faith. You know what that means, right? That means he's not a Christian. He's worse than an unbeliever. Did Like, did we think there was a category? Like, did it work like that? He's worse than an unbeliever. He calls himself a Christian, but he won't uh, take care of his bride. That's a strong statement. Of course, like... You have to recognize there's a difference between a man who cannot work and then a man who will not work, right? A man who cannot work might be physically impaired or he might be uh, temporarily unemployed but looking for a job or he might be in school still learning and and pursuing a new career path. Fine. But one who will not work uh, has the ability to provide but chooses not to, right? Or maybe he he does work. He just keeps all the money for himself and doesn't really give enough to those that he has to take care of, his relatives, his wife, his kids, and yeah, even parents and in-laws, whatever. Your money is first and foremost for provision, not indulgence and entertainment. And your role as a husband is to provide. To work, to work hard, and to provide. So be a provider. And finally, a godly husband is not an enforcer. He is not an enforcer. A godly husband is godly even when his wife is not godly. Do you notice the husband is never called to make his wife submit to him? You don't see that. The instructions to the husband are just to the husband. Leaves it at that. Don't don't make your wife do anything. Not like that, right? The wife is called to submit. She submits herself. She does that before the Lord. She decides that before God. You do not subject her to your force of power. You don't pull rank like that. Now, Here's an important question, you know, like if she won't submit, then what should the husband do? Shouldn't he like be like, you should submit, you know, what should she do? Shouldn't he enforce in some way? Well, what should she do when she won't submit? The, the answer is the same answer. You should show her love. That's the hardest part. You should show her love. Uh, you can be completely convinced that she's in the wrong. And you have all your facts lined up because she was being emotional and I was being logical. You can point out every moment where she mistreated you, where she messed up just as badly or even worse than you. You can point out all the moments where she knowingly did something wrong. So she, she can't like get on your case if you accidentally did something wrong. You, you, can, you, can, uh, you can point out all those times where she intentionally made things worse, made fights worse refuse to work things out. You can point all that stuff out. Christians do that all the time to Jesus. We, you know, we get crazy with him and Jesus still loves his bride. When you're fighting, you can explain why you're not as wrong as she thinks you are, right? You're like, oh, you think this is a big thing. It's just a little thing. What are you so mad about? You can do that. You can try to do that. Um, And that doesn't, Ever help. That's never been a solution. And you could say, well, you also do this. Well, genius move. Now you have two fights. You can explain all your actions you want. You can explain it all to her brain. But this is an issue of her heart. Your job is not to get yourself off the hook. Minister to her heart. Love your wife. Find out what's hurting her. Deal with that. Own up to that. Like, I hurt you. I didn't mean to hurt you. And you're hurting. And my job right now is not to defend myself and say it was okay for me to do that or it wasn't a big deal that I did that. It's, I hurt you. Now take care of your wife. God's love isn't demonstrated when... when uh, Everyone's good. The love of God is not demonstrated when everyone's good. Even unbelievers can love people who love them back, right? Oh, you love me, so I love you. Everyone can do that. Unbelievers can do that. Matthew 5 46, Jesus says that, right? He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a haunting idea, right? You got to love people that don't love you, people that are difficult, people who are defiant. You want to love your wife as Christ loved the church? It'll show not in those moments where everything's good. It'll show in the moments when she straight up doesn't deserve it. You don't condone sin or enable habits. You communicate what's on your heart. But you can still put her needs before your own and care for her so that, you, that you're speaking and acting to build up, not tear down. Now, here's the thing. If, if you're a great husband, you do all these things and there's, uh, you know, there's every, everything you've checked off, everything on the list, right? If you do all these things, there is no guarantee that she will be a great wife. And there's no guarantee that it'll be a great marriage. So don't think that this is the magic formula to success. It's not. This is the formula to be obedient to Jesus. It's between you and Jesus. It's not the magic spell to make your wife do what you wanted or to make your marriage better. It, it, doesn't, do, it doesn't guarantee any of that. You don't do it because it's a means to an end. You do it because God commanded you to do it, and you trust him. And when you don't do it, it's because you, you're disobedient, you don't do this for yourself, you do this unto the Lord. You have to look at your marriage not as a, a way to fulfill romance, but a way to fulfill ministry unto the Lord. Right? If you look at marriage as, as just a romance, you'll forfeit the ministry in it. It'll be about feeling and passion and attraction, and it will not be worshipful. You'll make all sorts of compromises. You know, you'll, it, it won't be worshipful. If you approach marriage as a ministry unto the Lord, obedient to the Lord, Protecting her, protecting her purity, protecting her, uh, her holiness, it'll breed trust, stability, integrity, partnership, worship. And I think that that would, just as a side effect, lead to intimacy and romance. You can lead your wife, but you can't control her. That's not your job, so don't. You are not an enforcer. You love her, you lead her, you romance her, you protect her, you provide for her. You do not enforce her. Well, let's wrap this up. Just a little bit of a conclusion here. You know, Proverbs 31, I told you, it describes kind of like the the perfect woman, this, this good wife, right? Uh, we don't have a chapter on a good man, a good husband, but if, like if if you just like break your brain over this and search the bible and try to find the one guy who truly serves god and really loves his wife the way that god says to love your wife i really think that there's only like like kind of one guy to look at hosea and that's not anyone's ideal marriage god tells hosea to marry a prostitute named gomer to take her and love her. And she's a prostitute. She didn't stop being a prostitute because they got married. So she continues to prostitute herself and she cheats on him. And God says, take her back. So he takes her back. And then she leaves him, like just abandons him, and then goes and has children with other men. So like multiple children, she's been gone for a long time, then kind of runs out of money and she's like, I'm just gonna go back to, the, to Hosea Because, like, you know, he has uh, the means to provide for me. And that's an awful way to treat your husband. And yet, Hosea, knowing all this, like, God instructs him, and Hosea buys her back because she's kind of like been sold almost as a slave. And so he buys her back, takes her in, and those children that don't belong to him, and he loves them all. We don't even know if she turned out to be a good wife, but we do know he was a good husband. And then like the only other example of a good husband, a better husband is Jesus. That's it. In both cases, it's a man who is willing to love a guilty bride, constantly being cheated on, constantly being betrayed. And yet working at the cost of his entire life to redeem her, to forgive her, to love her. You can get mad at how she said this thing to you or how she shuts you down when you tried to be nice. But it's always time to love your wife, always, until you can say you tried harder than Hosea and you tried harder than Jesus, until you reach that point, which you won't, it is time to love your wife. And so then for every husband who feels deficient, you know, it feels like that he failed in in some regard in one of these ways. Um, reminder, of course, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? The, the worst thing you can do right now is to despair. Because then you just stay in your failure and you continue to fail. And you, because you're choosing not to move out of it. Uh, don't emotionally react to a rebuke from the word, spiritually respond to it with obedience right? Confess, repent, obey. Let the word correct you, not condemn you. You're forgiven. Jesus has paid it all. So this is not a condemning lesson. This is a learning point that you and I have finally reached. How long have we been Christians? Now I finally learned how to be a husband. This is a good thing. Now you know where to confess to make to now you know where to confess to Jesus your mistakes and uh, to ask the Holy Spirit to help you and then to live better as a godly husband. Biblically love your wife. Spiritually lead your wife. Nourish and cherish your wife. Protect and provide for your wife. Do this even when she's defiant. Do it in submission to the Lord. Then you are loving your wife as Christ loved the church. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, one of the coolest things that we get to see in these texts about being a husband is that it is always instructed to us with a tone that is not condemning. Is always instructive. To an audience that you knew full well was full of failure. And really, so are we. None of us is perfect. No one's a master at being a husband. And so we pray, God, that we would latch on to that tone that you have, by your grace and by your love and goodness, given to us a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, to know what you expect of husbands and how we ought to take care of our wives. Help us to look to Jesus the model of our of our faith to see how he understood headship, how he understood love, how he understood his bride who was guilty and yet still the object of his love. Make us humble, make us grateful, make us joyful, and make us obedient that we might honor you and submit to you by loving our wives. We pray for all the husbands in this room that they would do this. We pray for all the young men in this room that if they're going to grow up to be married, they would live up to this. For those that won't get married, we still pray that they would hold the high spiritual standard of godliness. And for the women in this room, we pray that this would instruct them to know what a good husband ought to be to be grateful for those areas where their husbands are doing the work and to be prayerful where their husbands have room to improve. But in this, Lord, we pray that there would be the holy charge that we would display Jesus in the church when people see husbands and wives. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.